Kaya Wanju. Welcome to this podcast in the Word and Image series, coming to you from the land of the Wadjuk Noongar people in Perth, Western Australia. The Word and Image podcast series is a collaboration between the John Curtin Gallery and the Curtin University Creative Critical Imaginations Research Network. In this podcast series, staff and students share and discuss their works of creative writing produced in response to the exhibitions at John Curtin Gallery. This podcast is part of Where the Ink Falls, containing responses to Moon in a Dewdrop, an exhibition of work by the artist Lindy Lee. In this episode, we will explore the theme of art and migrant experience in Australia. You will hear from Curtin University staff members, Christina Lee, Denise Woods and Daniel O'Leary. We hope you enjoy. Let's start by hearing Christina Lee read her poem, The Virtues of Unbelonging. You speak Hokkien with an Australian accent, says the friend with passable Mandarin and perfected Singlish. My face turns a shade of embarrassment. To overseas relatives, my English is like words spoken through a mouth full of potatoes. A man once told me, your Aussie accent is so thick. My lungs ballooned, diaphragm rhythm stuttered, an involuntary wordless response to the bloke from Queensland. In 1977, our family journeyed across the Indian Ocean carried on the metal wings of a silver phoenix. Moments after touchdown on the tarmac, jet black hair, high cheekbones and yellow skin would be touched by another sun. Dressed in neat and tidy clothes, the small children were well-behaved and quiet. Hard-working parents would sweep floors, clean grease from train motors and drive forklifts. We'll prove we deserve to belong here. We are no longer a yellow peril, they said. For this new home, pieces of paper were exchanged, renouncing golden lions and tigers for new totems. An upright marsupial, a flightless bird. But where are you really from? They would still ask us. Hey, Jackie Chan. Hey, Chinaman. Do you know Kung Fu? Call me Bruce, my father joked. But really, he would prefer Cliff or Elvis than a jukebox or every yellow jumpsuit. In an album with flimsy film and adhesive cardboard, a black and white photograph, saw where everyone gazes into the distance, a slight upturn in the corner of their mouth. Here, my father is Chinese, Elvis Presley. Hair meticulously sculpted with brill cream, slicked into a quiff that is one part teddy boy, one part curry puff. He sings about blue suede shoes and a hound dog, ends with, Majula Singapura. I once cosplayed a white woman, the blonde one from Banana Rama, for a local lip sync contest. A borrowed wig, the shape of roadkill, was abandoned. The ruse would never have worked anyway. Years later, I cosplay an Asian woman in a heavy embroidered silk robe and satin headdress, a regal pose, an unsmiling expression. Behold, the Empress Dowager or a Manchu noblewoman. I tried channeling ancestral spirits, but even in my mother's homeland, the photographer's camera 
captures a foreigner in a costume that does not look quite right. A Qing Dynasty knockoff as obvious as the Rolexes sold on dusty curbsides. Hey, Charlie Chan. Hey, Mulan. Do you know Kung Fu? Do you eat cats and dogs? In school lunch boxes, my mother packed white bread sandwiches filled with pressed chicken and sliced peaches. A staple lost in translation. The children with rounded eyes saw exoticism. We traded our novelty for their Vegemite sandwiches. Your Chinese is so bad, my younger brother laughs. Yours is even worse. But my French is getting better. But I'll take congee over quiz de quinoui any day. We will ask our mother for recipes that taste like nothing found in chop socky restaurants and let her correct our pronunciation. Hey, Michelle Yo! Hey, Shang-Chi! I put on a shirt that has now become threadbare. A bandana-wearing panda proclaims, I know Kung Fu! And 15 other Chinese words. One part tongue-in-cheek, two parts truth. Thank you so much, Christina. What a great reading. Now, this poem was inspired by Lindy's artwork. How did you find her artwork helped you write this? Well, I was inspired in particular by two artworks. One was called The Seamless Tomb and the other one was the video that accompanied the exhibition. So The Seamless Tombs, this photographic work and these large panels um, that shows Lindy Lee's pregnant mother with family members just before her husband steps on a boat that's bound for Australia. And at the time, the white Australia policy was in effect. And this really sparked in me that sense of my own family's Mm -hmm. immigrant experience when we travelled from Christmas Island, then Mm -hmm. to Singapore, and then finally to Australia. And at the time, I was one and a half, so Mm -hmm. I'm having to kind of create (laughs) memories there as well based on stories that my family have told us about, um, you know, the journey over Mm. and our beginnings as an as an Asian Australian family from then on. And from my memory, the seamless tomb work is quite big. It was quite imposing as a piece in Lindy's exhibition. How did you find it stirred your memory? Well, your kind of reached for memory in a way. Well, I was looking at these massive panels Mm. and the people looked like my family. Yeah. And when you see something that, like a representation of Asianness that is not always front and front stage and centre, mm. um, then like it, it's an opportunity to reflect. That's and really it's also an opportunity to see yourself in a space that you normally don't. And also the idea of this is a, this is a young family with hopes and dreams for the future. Like it, it's an evocative idea, mm. the beginning, yeah. the migrant experience yeah. and a new life somewhere else. And I, I could see the relationships with this idea of family, but also the sense of taking a great leap yeah. out of something that's familiar into somewhere and an experience that is so unlike what you're used to. Mm. And I, I saw that sense of kind of, you, you can read the sense of unknowingness of mm. when you arrive, what's going to be there. Mm. Yeah. And I think you're kind of... Your word of the leap is really interesting, that kind of jump. It's a, it's a leap of faith, really, migration in so many ways. And speaking of leap, from my knowledge of your writing, this is your first poem. 
published poem, is it not? It is. I don't think I have written a poem seriously since high school and that was not published. Um, so this was a great opportunity to experiment in a, mm. in a form I don't usually write mm. and that I'm very, admittedly, felt quite uncomfortable doing. But that idea of, okay, why not? Yeah. Um, you know, why not write poetry? Why not move to another country? Yeah. It became a really nice parallel. I like that. And I feel from reading your poem there is... As a form, and it allows you to do so many things that other forms don't permit. Did you find you had a bit more freedom in expression in Absolutely. writing this? Yeah, the poetic form allowed me to explore and also convey a spectrum of experiences of moments growing up that shaped my sense of self as an Asian Australian. And some of these are kind of also created, um, especially when I did not, have, you know, when I was too young to have memories of something such mm. as the flight over. Hmm. Now, these experiences, these moments, they really stuck in my memory. And these are fragments of the past that on their own, they seem quite inconsequential mm. and random. But when you put them together, it becomes like a patchwork quilt where you see this fuller picture emerge. So, you know, there's things like a throwaway comment by a friend on my speaking Hokkien with an Australian accent, mm. which I was totally mortified at. <laughs> um, this idea of swapping lunches with kids at school because they found my pressed chicken and sliced peach oh. sandwich much more exotic than their Vegemite ones. Oh. And, but for us, the Vegemite sandwich <laughs> was exotic. You know, a photograph that's taken on a family trip in China where I'm trying to look like one of my ancestors mm. and kind of failing dismally. Mm -hmm. So all of those seem mm. like they're isolated. But yeah. when you put them together, you see this bigger picture of, a sense of, of identity and mm. also not quite fitting in in a place, but also not feeling like I fit in in my own body in this country. Mm. So I was, a, you know, really attracted to poetry as a form that is compact, but it's actually really expansive in meaning because it can provoke thoughts and associations mm. and not only for myself, but also for the reader. And I think that's one of the lovely things about poetry is you don't have to provide all the answers, those gaps. Those liminal spaces become uh, spaces where things that are unsaid or left to association, it's up to the reader to mm. kind of make those connections themselves, even to their own experiences. Oh, I think that's such a beautiful way to put it. I've, I found reading your poem, like you said, the fragments, there's almost like a vignette feel, the way it moves. And like you say, that kind of the throwaway comment that someone may have said, it does linger. And I think many people who, call more than one place home, have these moments. I think growing up for me, I was the only person in my family not born in Ireland and that's extended family too. So every time, no matter where I was, home was somewhere else. And I think throwaway comments for a reader, like these moments that you've offered, they, they're almost reassuring for a reader that someone else has felt it too. I yeah. would agree. I yeah. Like so sometimes I feel very personal. Mm. But then when you see or you hear about other people having the experiences, mm. you realise this sense of maybe an, an uneasy belonging or a sense of unbelonging yeah. is a shared experience for many people. Yeah. So I've lived in Australia for over four decades, but I'm still struck by the peculiar comment made by many people to me and often said in a very complimentary way that my English is so good. Oh, my God. Sorry. That's 
That drives me insane. Gosh, what the oh, and the compliment is there, but there's an undertone at times, isn't there? The, yeah, the like delivery. You, you don't quite belong. Mm. So when you know you say you've lived here for over four decades, do you have a moment, or do you have a place where you feel most at home? Does something define that for you? Yeah, strangely, it home for me is a town that no longer exists in the Pilbara. Oh, how interesting. What's yeah. the name of the town? The town was called Goldsworthy. It was a Wonderful. mining town. Yes. And it shut in 1992 and was raised, completely bulldozed down mm. in 1993. And for me, wow. that's home. That is because I grew up there. Yeah. That is where I felt a real sense of community. I was there with my family. Mm. And for me, home is always where family is mm. and a sense of belonging. Mm. And often that belonging is linked to other people yes um and the family was all together and there was lots of hope for the future so for me home is family but it's also a belonging in a place that strangely doesn't exist anymore I feel like there's a poem waiting to be written there I think so I think so I'd love to read it thank you so much for your time Christina that was such a great reading thank you Denise Woods, your essay, Copies, Aunties and Answers, focuses on the idea of belonging or unbelonging and finding, as you wrote, your true north. How did Lindy's work speak to you in terms of identity? That's a really good question, Danielle. I think one of the things that really struck me is because for basically all my adult life, I've been sort of thinking about my identity and where do people who look like me mm. with similar backgrounds like me fit into this Australian landscape, this, yeah. this place. Mm. And I think Lindy's artwork and the way that, she, you know, the journey that we see through her artwork really made me feel like I could relate to her questions as well because they were similar questions to mine. Yeah, okay. And I really liked the way that she reflected on those questions mm. and the way that she actually made peace with those questions about mm. belonging. Yeah. Because um, you're often, you know, in this situation where you're sort of thinking, um, you know, what am I? Who decides mm. what I what I sh- should call myself? Yeah. Official documents ask you to identify yeah. like the senses. You're looking at the boxes going, I don't know. <laughs> None of this really makes sense. Can no. I do more than one? It doesn't capture it doesn't. who you are. Yeah. And those questions that you mentioned, what questions are they for you that stand out from Lindy? So I suppose the questions of, you know, um, am I trying to be, trying to fit in by being what I think is acceptable mm. from a perspective of having a Western identity. Okay, yeah. And to, to try and sort of be like the majority. Yeah, okay. And did you find as you wrote this piece it came up for you, those questions kept repeating? Yes. You? Yeah. Yes, because, you know, it's, it's this kind of tension that, mm. that, you know, we tend to feel as people who belong to the diaspora of, Yeah. you know, there is the the place where you're at and the place mm. where you're from and how do this, these two come yeah. together? And also because people keep reminding you that maybe you don't really belong here yeah. when they say things like, where do you really come from? Oh, because, so you know, you know what they mean. They, mm. they basically are saying you don't look like you belong here. Yeah. Or when, you know, the, the go back to where you came from mm. and you're thinking, okay, you know, which 
which came from are you talking about? Yeah, that's a good question. And then the other one where you get like Asian family members or friends saying, you know, mm. you're too Western, you're a banana, you know, white on the inside, yellow oh. on the outside. So I so, have not heard that expression yeah, before. Oh so my the banana, yeah, bananas. So um, it's a, so it's kind of, so it's sort of those kind of questions that I can see that Lindy mm. is also sort of you know questioning, thinking about you know. Do you re- you're not completely rejecting mm. the Asian cultural yeah. aspects or the family because you mm. know there, there's a lot there as well, but how do you bring these two together and, and learning to see that they're not mutually exclusive? You can be somewhere in between. There can be overlaps, and I, I to me that was that brought a lot of clarity, and I really enjoyed that journey through her work from you know the the kind of. Um, Western art that you know she's she started copying to the kind of photo uh, from her family album and what she did with them mm. and and you know engaging with uh, Asian art like calligraphy but in mm. a way that was more authentic to her yeah. so also the question what is authenticity identity yeah. doesn't have to be something that you need to associate necessarily with someone else's idea of no. authenticity. So what the census captures, it doesn't have to be fit into a box. Yes, and I think exactly. this clarity yeah. is really interesting. And in your piece, you write about finding your true north. Mm. So maybe let's hear your essay. Let's have a reading, if we can be so lucky. And we'll talk about this idea of clarity after. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Denise. Copies, answers, and aunties. Are copies always inferior to the original? Copies aren't necessarily inferior. It depends on your framework. I try to look into the carbon deposit-heavy eyes of the subject of Lindy Lee's The Silence of Painters. This is not easy. There are many versions that make up the entire artwork. And between the blue background paint and the layers of photocopy carbon, I feel unable to get to know them. The European subject seems a bit shy, as if hiding behind a veil. Yet I feel drawn to them, all of them. They may not be the original, but they are not inferior. They have a haunting mystery and beauty about them. They have an aura. Lindy Lee saw these as copies of herself, as she says, a bad copy of China and European Australia. What am I a copy of? My parents grew up in countries that were colonized. My father's family were known as the King's Chinese. They took on the traits of their British colonial masters, speaking English, listening to the BBC, loving Western classical music and musicals, having afternoon tea, enjoying British literature and cricket. But they were not carbon copies. My grandmother still wore sarong kabayas, attire influenced by the indigenous people of the Southeast Asian islands they've lived on for generations. She didn't just wear this for special occasions. She wore this all the time. She cooked Peranakan food and cakes, owned British recipe books, made butter cakes and biscuits. This was all just part of life, part of who they were. But when the Japanese came, this identity became a liability. They had to hide being somewhat of a copy of the British and from a group that were known to work closely with the British. My mother grew up in a country where they had to take on new names. You do this because it was demanded by the state and to show allegiance to the government. Fit in, be as close a copy as possible to what is considered acceptable. 
Chinese names were replaced with Indonesian-sounding names. Chinese identity had to be hidden. Cultural customs and celebrations could not be carried out openly. No rowdy Chinese New Year celebrations anymore. The Dutch and Japanese colonizers were harsh, and independence brought a different set of challenges. Don't risk being accused of being communist or communist sympathizers. Do the right thing. Use the new name. My maternal grandmother wore Indonesian sarong kabayas as well, and the family was not traditionally Chinese, but also influenced by the culture and customs of the land that had been home for generations. She was a great cook. She made my favorite beef and potato croquette. I grew up thinking this was Indonesian food, which it is, but it also isn't really. It is the Indonesian version of the Dutch croquette. My grandparents and parents were bad copies of the Chinese ancestors nobody in the family can remember too many generations ago. They were not exactly good copies of the Europeans that had such an influence on their lives, and they were faint copies of the traditional owners of the lands they lived on. I grew up reading in it Blyton. I wanted to go to boarding schools like Mallory Towers or Sinclair's. I wanted to have midnight rendezvous with my friends. I long to have adventures like the famous five. I am a copy of my parents and extended family. Like the copies in the silence of painters, it is not easy to work out what my family would have originally been like. They've been put through the copier many times. There's a build-up of so many layers of experiences, each slightly different to the one before, offset just that slightly from each other. At times, identity had to be hidden just like the veil of carbon and ghost lines in Lindy Lee's artwork. The painters may be silent, but they are not absent. I fit somewhere in between. But this is not the only or final answer Lindy Lee offers me. Contemplating identity and belonging are just the starting points of the journey to finding true north. The bigger answer, it would seem, is in another question. The essential question in Zen is not who you are, but what are you? The what becomes this invitation to understand how this being is actually connected to the world. What am I? How am I connected to this world? I look into the eyes of Auntie. There are several versions of Auntie Xuan Chen in the accordion book. Her caller tells me that she is wearing traditional Chinese attire, maybe a cheong sum. Black ink on red each version slightly different from the next, but there is clarity in her eyes. Auntie acknowledges me and my presence. I feel a connection with her. This is a headshot, also a copy, but of a photograph. No questions about the inferiority of copies here, rather a celebration of the rediscovery of images from family albums, images documenting history, ancestry and relevance. Red is a lucky colour, a colour of celebration. For Lindy Lee, it is also a nod to Imperial China and the Cultural Revolution. Two pages in Auntie's book have ink splatters, possibly flung, a technique Lindy Lee connects with a sense of authenticity. No ghost lines. There are no veils covering Auntie's gaze or face. Ancestors rendered through inkjet, the subject is not shy, identity not hidden. I am connected through ancestry. My aunties are copies, copies with clarity. 
I can look into their eyes and feel a connection. They have found ways to fit somewhere in between. They have taken on different Asian and Western cultures, habits and traditions, and live comfortably in that space. They understand how they fit into this world. They were educated in convent schools, grew up in patriarchal societies, shopped using local languages, became teachers, taught English, played netball and piano. They would wear Indonesian sarong kabayas or Chinese cheong sams, but only for special occasions. They would make me croquette, kuei pai tea, or take me out to high tea. The answers are not limited to understanding identity, but are found in learning about the self. Lindy Lee shows me how selfhood is something that is always unfolding, is always being engaged, is always experiencing, is always changing, is always growing, is always connected. I can choose to engage or not to engage. I choose to engage with family, ancestry and history, with all its complexities. This informs my current self and my current connections to this world. Finding true north is about the self and selfhood is like the anti-accordion book. Always unfolding, always changing, but always connected. It was only as an adult I came to realize that my aunties loved me unconditionally. Very beautiful woman, strong in their presence. Okay, thank you so much, Denise. That was brilliant. How did you find this idea of copy? How did you find that helped you explore what you were saying? Because from my reading anyway of your piece, you come to a lovely kind of clear finish, which is quite rare in some of these pieces. It was quite, um, for the reader, I found it quite reassuring and comforting, this I, this happiness and the clarity that you found. And I, you know, that's an interesting thing to say because that's how I felt at the end of Lindy mm. Lee's exhibition as well. Oh, that's so nice. You're just going through and yeah. looking at her work and reading stuff and then sort of coming out to, at the other end and going, Wow, this is this is this journey has you know mm. I know it's taken her decades to yeah. come to that, but you know it's like a gift that you know this is one mm. way of thinking about copies yeah. and thinking about identity. Yeah, because you know, I, I like the idea of copies because mm. we often think of a copy in many different ways. You know, me- mechanical reproduction. Mm. What value does it hold? Yeah, and what she actually does in looking at copies and her questioning about copies mm. is that you know you can do things with copies. Copies don't always have to be exactly the same. Yeah. And copies can be slightly different and copies can have layers. And, you know, you don't think about copies often as having many layers. You know, mm. you think there's one copy. Yeah. But then you put it through again and again. And, you know, and her moving from a photocopier to an inkjet printer, you know, that yeah. shift in technology, that shift in time. And, you know, and I felt like that kind of describes a journey from, you know, thinking mm. of, you know, how can I be the best copy of whatever it is to fit in mm. and, and, you know, um, be okay to take up space. Yeah. To realizing that, yeah. you know, you can be a copy with many different layers and mm. you can move from one type of copy to the other. Yeah. And copies don't always have to end up looking messy. They can mm. be clear and, you know, mm. and you can express um, your identity as someone who is a copy that has been put through the copier many times and has, you know, many different layers to it. Yeah. And that's okay. And I think that's the thing that I got from Lindy oh, is that it's okay. How wonderful. Yeah, it's okay to be in between. Mm. It's okay to be a copy of 
many things, your mm. identity is not necessarily linked to one particular thing or mm. the other. Yeah. And I and I think that's reassuring. Yeah. And I think I think you captured that kind of the kind of transformation of the copy really well in your piece with talk of clothing and food and that kind of how that is such a often that's what handed, is handed down for migrants. If they don't have that sense of place, if they don't have that sense of home, they have the recipes, they have the food. Like I am, I have to tell you, I'm craving croquettes oh. so much right now. And I pretty much prefer the Indonesian version as well. Oh, really? Uh, oh, so much more. Oh, cool. um, but I think like for me as I've never migrated anywhere, but I'm the daughter of migrants and I'm married to a migrant. So the migrant experience is very close to me. But I think for me growing up, home was always somewhere else. It was when we were in Perth, home was Ireland. And when we were in Ireland, home was Australia. So it was that kind of, like we talked about before, that tension, that pulling. I'm going to ask everyone this episode, in this episode, this question, what does home mean to you as a migrant? That's a really good question, mm. and I, I can really relate to your sense of where is home. Mm. You know, we don't, can, does home have to be one place? Can it be yeah. many places? Does it have to be a physical place as yeah. well? Is the other thing I often think about. And I think to me, home is where I feel like I can be me and I belong. Yeah. And nice. in a sense, I, I feel like in Australia, even though, you know, there, there's all sorts of politics with identity mm. going on and race, but at the same time, it feels like home because I can be myself. There are mm. other people like me. There are other diasporic people like me. Mm. And we're allowed to have questions. Yeah. And we're allowed to sometimes, you know, wonder whether mm. we belong or not or mm. get questioned about that. But I feel like I can be who I am here now, you know, because it doesn't, it doesn't really matter necessarily what, other people think in terms of whether I should call this home yeah. or not. I mean, I was told once, you know, for someone who looks like me, it's very odd that you call Australia home because you oh, obviously don't look like you belong. How awful. And I was miserable about of that. Of course, yeah. And, um, but then I, you know, as I got older, <laughs> um, I realised that, you know, home is where I feel like I can be myself. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, that's a beautiful answer. And hopefully there is a croquette not too far away. I hope so too. <laughs> the whole process of making it from scratch is horrendous. Oh, but it's so worth it. <laughs> it so is. Worth it. it is. That's oh, true. Thank you so much for participating in this episode, thank Denise. You. We're so lucky to have you in this collection. Thank you so much. And I feel such a privilege to be in this collection with people like you. So Danielle, what I found really interesting in your piece is how you talked about where home shifts depending on where you are. Yes. Oh, so when I said when I'm in Ireland, Australia's home. Yeah. And when I'm in Australia, Ireland is home. It's a weird thing. And I'm not sure if I, I found always growing up, my parents, that's what my parents did. So that's what I did. Um, you know, my parents supported West Coast. So I supported West Coast. You do what they do. But it's funny, we still do that now, even though I've never called or lived in Ireland for longer than six months, I still call it home. And it's a funny feeling. I, I feel like I'm moving away from it a little bit, the older I'm getting. And I think the more I feel at home here, 
because I think this idea of home being somewhere you're not is a little bit sad, I think. Do you feel that when you think about where home is? Not really, I think, because in a way, being a migrant was something that was a choice rather than something that was because of circumstance, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think for someone who migrated because they are a refugee, you know, mm. because they're fleeing, fleeing violence. Mm. Maybe that's, that's different because. Yeah. That, I think that's interesting because I think, I think that might be where my attention is. I'm not, and my, I didn't choose migration and I haven't migrated. I'm the child of migrants, but my parents migrated because of like major economic recession. Like a lot of people think the may, the biggest Migration out of Ireland was in the potato famine, but it was actually in the 1980s, the highest number of people, which is fascinating in a contemporary history, if you think about it. But it's funny because my family have, my parents have been in Australia now longer than they've been in Ireland. So I, I think they've been in Australia over 40 years and they left Ireland at 25. Um, but they know their home is here. But I think it's just a, pull to Ireland it's funny they're in their retirement phase now and I think a lot of the Irish think they're going to move back now that they've retired which is not the case I'm afraid to say well I'm delighted to say actually I don't want them going um but I think that was something when I was in the Lindy exhibition Lindy Lee's exhibition that's what kept coming back to me was this idea of home and what I ended up writing about it's a beautiful piece oh thank you This personal essay is called Deep Dark Blue. The sun is at its highest point on the winter solstice as I walk into the water on Ningaloo Reef. I am not sure what time it is. My phone is long dead and my watch was purposely left at home. The water resists with little effort, making way for me to cool down. It is hot and the air is still. I struggle to dive into the water despite the relief it will offer. Near to the same stretch of coast, I once had an encounter with a black tip reef shark. He was only about 1.5 metres in length, but size is irrelevant when you are scared. He may as well have been a kilometre long. I came across him, I think it was a him, in a tight stretch of reef. His dorsal fin hit my flipper as he tried to move away. This annoyed him, or maybe scared him, and he turned back suddenly. In my fight or flight response, I chose the less known third option. Scream underwater, curl into a ball and pretend to be dead. I'm convinced that shark was and still is angry. As a precaution, I have researched the average lifespan of a black tip reef shark, 13 years. If they have memories, they do. And if they recognize people, apparently not. I can happily jump into the ocean, kilometers offshore, to snorkel an isolated reef and to swim with whale sharks, knowing dangerous creatures could be nearby. But to walk 10 steps from the shore into the welcoming reef is now petrifying. My family are not from here. When in Australia, Ireland is home. When in Ireland, Australia is home. In my diary, age 10, trying to be profound, I wrote, why is home where I am not? In the same diary, I talked about the envy of my school friends 
who went camping with their extended families to exotic places like Cervantes, Lancelin, and Durian Bay. Our holidays were not spent camping. We travelled to our other home. When we arrived in Ireland, it would be a different season. I would leave Perth in a wet, wintry July to arrive in Ireland in what was also a wet, wintry July. Ah, there's a grand stretch in the evening, they would say, trying to convince me it was summer. Once home, the Australian home, I would write letters to my cousins telling them about Mullaloo Beach on Christmas Day. I would write about how we didn't have to go to church in our best, most uncomfortable outfit or go visit certain aunts by a certain time. We would, as a family, stroll the 300 metres from our home to the coast with a new beach toy. Bright silvery blue waves would crash onto the water with such intensity that you need to time the run into the water. You can't go to the beach at Christmas, they would reply. It's too cold. I would say, ah, but the evening is really stretchy and grand. When I married, it was in a garden with a gelato cart ready nearby for our guests the moment after we said, I do. When congratulating us, my oldest uncle asked, was that a wedding ceremony? Did you really just get married? He had never been to a garden wedding before or seen a ceremony conducted by a woman. Still confused, but brushing it away so he could get to the gelato, he said, ah, but it's grand weather for a spring wedding. It was autumn. The ancient Celtic calendar, the one Ireland uses today, has always been confusing. Winter starts in November and ends in January. Summer begins in May and ends in July. The seasons in Ireland are linked to agriculture. March in Gaelic, Mata, translates to the middle of spring. September, Mian Fodma, means middle of harvest. Whenever I would wish my cousins a happy first day of summer, I was always off by a month. Whenever they thought February was a cooler month to visit Perth because our summer was finally over, they were wrong too. In this home, the only place I've ever really felt at home, I now try to understand whether with Noongar seasons. The flow of these seasons feels so clear. I take comfort in that the seasons begin with a sign from country, not an arbitrary date on a calendar. It is now Mokaroo, the first winter, the season associated with the colour deep, dark blue. I am camping by Ningaloo Reef with my husband. Ningaloo means deep water. The deep blue water here is different to the water I know in Perth, the water I know in Ireland. The sunset on the winter solstice seems early, even though it's expected. No matter what the season is, no matter what calendar you live by, if you are in the southern hemisphere, this is the shortest day of the year. For my family in Ireland, it is their longest day. The sun sets quickly, but the light lingers. There is the smallest thin cloud just above the horizon, like pale green ink thrown against the sky. The water quickly shifts from deep dark blue to a bright liquid gold that shields the ocean, broken only by the waves crashing over the reef. The tide has called the ocean back, making visible to the moon what is usually hidden. A black tip reef shark rubs its belly on the retreating shore. 
Turtles pop their heads up for moments of air. Driftwood that was hidden in the day is now stripped back. Once the light from the sun is gone, I look up and try to find a patch without a star, without a planet. The Milky Way overwhelms the sky. We walk the 80 metres from the pebbly beach back to our campsite that we call home for six days. Small spiders glitter the sand, their eyes like shards of glass retreating as we move closer. The next day, the sun is at its highest point again. I'm still not sure what time it is. Up to my waist in the water, I freeze as a curious reef shark pup swims toward me. I have a choice walk out or swim in. Floating like a ball is not an option in water this shallow. Where the reef is, the water is deep dark blue. That is where I go. I like that it's beautiful. Thank you. Feels a while since I thought about why I wrote this and it's interesting with Lindy's work, you really feel I think with the three of us in this episode, you really feel the difference in how people can respond to work and what it can make them feel. I mean, what you, Christina, and I wrote are so vastly different, but we all come come from a place of identity, migration, and responding to this, which I think is so fantastic. It just shows you how versatile the meaning of art can be. And how it has an impact on people in different ways. And, you know, as you were reading that, I was thinking, is there anything wrong with thinking that there are two places you call home? Yeah. Nah. I think there's nothing wrong with it at all, is there? I think, um, in a way, I'm quite lucky, which is quite a nice way to think about it. And to finish this conversation, I think. Thank you so much, Denise. It's been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast with work from Curtin University Writers. Our book, titled Where the Ink Falls, is available from the John Curtin Gallery website if you wish to read these and other poems and essays. This podcast series was sponsored by the University Creative Critical Imaginations Research Network and the John Curtin Gallery. Music by Hi, OK, Sorry. Your host was Danielle O'Leary and edited by Pear Henningsgaard. <laughs>